From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week on Terra Informa, we're sharing two archive pieces. It's summertime, and many people, myself included, are enjoying local beer out on patios. Terra Informer Nicole Weart, a self-proclaimed beer lover, talks to Neil Herbst, the co-owner of local Edmonton microbrewery Alleycat, about the challenges to their business sustainability efforts. She then talks with some University of Alberta experts on barriers to sustainability for small businesses. Then we speak with James Baylog, an acclaimed National Geographic photographer, videographer, and public speaker about his work documenting the effects of climate change on melting glaciers. But before we jump into that, here is Shelley Jodwin with this week's environmental headlines. It's no secret that caribou are a disappearing species on the Canadian landscape, but can they be saved? On Thursday, July 27th, Environment and Climate Change Canada released a proposal to try and save these beloved creatures, but it comes at the hand of heavy criticism. Many critics believe the government isn't doing enough to protect caribou habitat, putting needs of industry first. One industry representative argues that populations continue to dwindle even in areas that industry doesn't operate. New legislation rolling out in 2017 and 2018 should put more protective barriers on the species and will have to be implemented quickly as populations continue to dwindle. On a lighter note, we have some unique international news. One Chinese company is taking its name quite literally. The Panda Green Energy Group is creating solar farms organized in the shape of a panda face when viewed aerially. The province of Shanxi, China, is the first to get one such farm, but the company plans to build 100 more across the nation. The friendly faces are expected to cost $3 billion, in turn generating enough to power 10,000 homes annually per panda plant. There are also currently talks of expansion into Canada, Australia, Germany, and Italy. The United Kingdom government has announced that from 2040 onwards, new diesel and petrol vehicles will be banned. That's gasoline for you Canadians out there. The government is also encouraging local jurisdictions to develop nitrogen dioxide emission reduction plans in the next eight months, a timeline which has been shortened from its original 18 months. Nitrogen dioxide, a gas harmful to lungs, is especially found near highways and in cities. While some welcome the policy announcement, critics claim that the target will not encourage changes in the short term beyond what is already underway. Some expect electric vehicles to mostly replace fossil fuel-based vehicles by 2030 in the UK, purely based on costs and other factors. The co-owner of Edmonton's oldest microbrewery, Alleycat Brewing Company. In this archive piece from 2013, Nicole asked Neil about the brewery's sustainability and energy efficiency challenges. She then chatted with University of Alberta assistant professors Joel Gemmon and Matthew Grimes about the challenges small businesses typically face with sustainability efforts. 
You might be surprised to hear Alberta has 12 microbreweries at the moment. Now, to be fair, many don't last more than two years before shutting down. But if you're from Edmonton, you've probably heard of Ellie Cat Breweries. It's Edmonton's longest-running microbrewery, and those at the brewery are doing all they can to be sustainable. I sat down with co-owner Neil Herbst, who told me they're doing everything from reusing yeast to recycling glass to turning off the lights when no one's in a room. I think you'll find what we do is, is similar to, to many microbreweries, um, just because of the scale that we operate at. We don't have opportunity to do all the cool, sexy kind of green things, uh, you know, like cogeneration or thermal or whatever. Um, so what we do is that uh, we do things like uh, our spent grains from the brewing process are given to a farmer to feed to his cattle. Um, the spent grains are actually quite high in protein. Um, we do things like recovering hot water off of our, our brewing process to use for cleaning and for uh, heating water for the next, or hot water for the next brew. Uh, so we're recovering energy that way. Um, we do things like using uh, recycled glass for our bottles. Um, we recycle all our, our cardboard, all our plastic. Um, we, uh, one of the things that we did, which probably not a lot of breweries have done, small breweries our size, is we've sort of consolidated all our, our uh, uh, cooling systems into one glycol system, so we're much more efficient in terms of cooling our beer uh, than we used to be. Um, we're switching tanks over to be all jacketed and cooled. Um, so we're just cooling the beer inside the tanks rather than the room that the tanks are in. Um, so that gives us some more efficiencies in terms of uh, you know, electricity use and such. Um, and then, you know, it's um, you know, just day-to-day -day stuff, I think, like anybody does. Uh, we're sitting here in a room that's with no lights on because there's lots of light coming through the windows. So it's that sort of thing. It's not easy or cost-effective in many cases for a small local business to be green, but I'm no expert on sustainable business, so I sought out two assistant professors at the University of Alberta who are. Joel Gaiman researches corporate sustainability and his colleague Matthew Grimes researches social entrepreneurship and sustainable business. And they both agreed small businesses face a lot of challenges when it comes to competing with large businesses. A lot of uh, small businesses, you know, new, new startups face a similar set of challenges, uh, which is one, around distinctiveness. You know, so what's my point of difference? How do I uh, compete in the marketplace? But then also around legitimacy. So how is it that um, you know, my customers and other stakeholders are going to take me seriously and think that I'm viable? So I think that um, you know, whether you're a microbrewery or some other kind of business, those are the sort of challenges that are, you're facing. The, the other challenge, too, for sustainable businesses, um, and this is not always the case, but in many cases, your cost structure is a little bit higher because you're taking on incremental, um, incremental uh, duties um, that, and you're, you're essentially serving two masters. So in some ways, you're serving the, the needs of profit and, and it's, at the same time, you're serving the needs of society or the environment or long-term long values. So that, that becomes a tension that um, you have to work out internally, but also you need, to, you need to show to the external environment that there's some resolution there. And according to Neil, Edmonton is a great place to set up a microbrewery. I think Edmontonians are, are embracing local. Um, I think they look for that. I think it's a, 
not the only factor in terms of purchasing beer because it has to taste good too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's certainly one of the one of the factors. But while Ellie Cat is doing well, not every microbrewery can say the same. What they're trying to do is make their product unique. How can I stand out? How can I create a following? Joel and Matthew said one of the only ways for a small business to succeed is to get past that liability of newness and to bring something different to the table. One of the, the challenges for a new business is always uh, cultivating that, uh, that following initially, right? So, I mean, in the case of Alley Cat, which is the oldest microbrewery in Edmonton, they've, they've managed to overcome some of those challenges, right, in, in terms of they've shown that they can uh, sustain themselves from a longevity perspective. There, there are other microbreweries that have come and gone in Edmonton, so for whatever reason they weren't able to capture that, uh, you know, that consumer interest or uh, if it's uh, buy-in from restaurants and other uh, you know, bar owners. Um, so that's the challenge of novelty. I mean, you have to somehow overcome that, uh, what is sometimes called a liability of newness, right? So as a new organization, how do you, um, you know, overcome that, begin to cultivate uh, a group of stakeholders who are committed to what you're uh, trying to do, whether that's customers, investors, uh, rest, in this case restaurant owners, bar owners, etc., um, who are going to actually put your product on the shelf and make sure it gets uh, sold. So yeah, that's one of the challenges. Some of the research that Joel and I are currently doing looks at, um, looks at new market categories. So, f so for example, the, the, the category of microbrewing um, as, as that category becomes more and more legitimate, more and more known by consumers, uh, that, that helps out with these challenges of novelty. So to the extent that I may be a sole, uh, you know, a solo entrepreneur out there trying to, um, trying to take on these Goliaths, so to speak, that becomes a real issue. But to the extent that there's a, there's a network of us that are in this together, that are Trying to trying to fight the powers, so to speak, um, that that becomes a way that, that consumers can say, okay, yes, I understand what microbrewing microbrewing is. I understand it in, in relationship to these larger larger companies. I understand the advantages and the disadvantages that come with that. Um, so those categories become an important source of overcoming these liabilities of newness. And that's exactly what Ellie Cat has done. Neil told me that just recently, LA Cat and the other microbreweries in Alberta sat down to form the Alberta Small Brewers Association. He told me, for them, it's not about competition, it's about giving a voice to the little guy. In our section of the industry, people tend to cooperate quite a lot. I mean, certainly, we compete, um, but we're pretty friendly with everybody. Uh, for instance, I was just up in that hogshead in St. Albert uh, chatting with them, they had some questions, some technical questions. They wanted my opinion for what it was worth on. And, uh, you know, so we, yesterday I was talking to uh, Brewsters in Calgary about some issues that we had. So you It's know, not like you're sort of giving a, away trade secrets. No, no, we're not giving away trade secrets, but certainly in terms of trying to operate the brewery more efficiently or, you know, working out problems with uh, technical problems, there's certainly a lot of exchange. Um, and on top of that, just recently, what was it, last week, I guess, we all the small brewers in Alberta sat down and uh, formed an association, Alberta Small Brewers Association, so that we can do some cooperative marketing, um, hopefully do some you know, cooperative purchasing, try to be a little more efficient that way. Microbreweries in Alberta have a hard go at it. 
Alberta Liquor and Gaming Commission sets a minimum capacity at startup of 5,000 hectoliters a year. Neil said Ellicat only brews around 7,000. And a big player like Budweiser might brew somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million hectoliters a year. Many other provinces in Canada actively support local brewers, giving them more shelf space than their sales might actually justify. And Neil feels that lack of support from the government. We find the province a bit frustrating uh, because it doesn't seem to see it as having any role in promoting local. I mean, it just takes our tax money and, yes. and that seems to be their whole role. So it'd be nice if, if the province would see some role for itself um, in, in promoting local. Having said that, i got to say that Alberta agriculture is awesome. I mean, they're very supportive. Um, but the Alberta Gaming Liquor Commission is somewhat less supportive. And Joel thinks when it really comes down to it, it's who you want to be as an entrepreneur. So one of the, the policy issues around this is um, to what extent do you want government uh, picking winners and losers, right? And uh, to what extent um, should there be a, a level playing field or should the playing field be uneven? Um, and just, just how much do you want to leave to the, to the market, quote-unquote, um, versus to what extent do you need to perhaps shape the dynamics of the market um, in, in ways that you're going to get outcomes that are beneficial to all the stakeholders, both the businesses, the investors, as well as the rest of the citizens that you're, uh, you're responsible for. But in the end, it's all for the love of beer. That was an archive piece by Nicole Weart speaking with Neil Herbst, co-owner of Alley Cat Brewing Company, and then with assistant professors Joel Gemmon and Matthew Grimes about the challenges for small businesses to be sustainable. Next, Roche Niner and Matt Hergy chat with James Baylog about his work to document and communicate environmental degradation through photography and videography. James has changed the way we think about endangered animals and ignited discussions about the importance of protecting North America's old-growth forests through the lens of a camera. He is an award-winning photographer and has been featured in National Geographic, an accomplished videographer and a public speaker. In 2013, he unveiled his Extreme Ice Survey Project to help people understand the impact of climate change on global ice over time. Using time-lapse photography, James captures glaciers melting over time, as just a few weeks ago, one of the largest icebergs ever broke off of Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica. We thought it would be interesting to hear what James had to say four years ago about melting ice. James Balog is somebody who has risked a lot in order to show what he thinks is the greatest threat to the world today. I'm James Balog. I'm a photographer, author, and uh, founder of the Extreme Ice Survey. Balog has scaled mountains, dug his crampon shoes into thin sheets of ice, and rappelled down ice crevasses, daring death, all in the name of imparting a message about the impacts of global warming. Some people have even insisted that Baylog has a fatal attraction to ice. So the, the impulse that drives it all the time is an expressive and creative one. And what happens is I wind up dipping a toe, jumping in full body into various aspects of science as, I, as I'm working through these different areas of uh, creative expression. 
And I fairly quickly went from being interested in adventure photography and uh, traditional nature photography into, be, into being interested in the, in the contact zone, the collision zone between humans and nature. His work as an award-winning photographer has appeared in National Geographic, The New Yorker, Life, Vanity Fair, The New York Times Magazine, Smithsonian, Audubon, and Outside. His work has attempted to redefine the way we humans relate to the world around us. The, the real point is that I, uh, through much of my adult life, I became aware of the fact that the nature as we perceive it around us is not in pristine condition. We would like it to be in pristine condition, uh, but the reality is that nature is forever having this um, tsunami of human desire and human need colliding up against it. So that's really what's driven me to peck at this subject for a long time. In the case of climate change, uh, I was originally somewhat skeptical many decades ago about the climate change story, but then as I took the time to understand the research and the knowledge and the depth of knowledge that was out there, I came to the understanding that climate change was real. and. Um, uh, that it was something I should do something about as a photographer, but I couldn't figure out how to um, turn it into images. I could see that it was a big issue of our time, but how do you make a picture of changing air or changing weather patterns? It's very, very difficult, almost impossible. After a lot of research, I came to the conclusion that maybe the story was in the ice. That was the only way I could figure out how to do it. I could, I could see that melting ice was a three-dimensional manifestation of a changing climate. That at least was something that I could turn into that rectangular thing called a photograph. Mm -hmm. So I started working on ice in 2005, and that eventually led to this magnum opus called the Extreme Ice Survey that is the reason why I'm here in, uh, in Edmonton today. Baylog began the Extreme Ice Survey in 2007. The project used time-lapse photography from cameras installed in remote locations in Greenland, Iceland, Alaska, and northern parts of Canada, as well as the Himalayas, to illustrate the effects of global warming on the Earth's glacial ice. Well, I became aware that there were an enormous number of uh, women and men who were working uh, in, in, in the polar regions and in the alpine regions, uh, the mountains of the world, looking at ice as it was re retreating as a consequence of climate change. I uh, have been photographing and, and uh, sorry, I've been photographing glaciers for about 30 years in the course of various different projects and assignments. I've been climbing on glaciers as a mountaineer and studying glaciers for 40 years, more or less. I was simply aware that ice was an interesting subject, first and foremost. Then I became aware that ice was receding as a consequence of climate change. But I was really stuck about how to photograph ice. And then I had a magazine assignment in 2005 from the New Yorker to shoot part of a story on climate change. And uh, they sent me to Iceland. And I told the picture editor, you know, you think I'm going to pull some magic rabbit out of the hat here and do something really creative with 
with ice and glaciers and retreat. And honestly, Elizabeth, I don't know what to do. I can't imagine how I'm going to do this. And she said, don't you worry, James. She has a German accent. I don't do it very well. But don't you worry, James. Just go. It will be fine. Iceland was a revelation. And I realized that in in uh, glaciers in, a, in certain kinds of places, like Iceland, and I subsequently discovered many other places, mm-hmm. you could actually bear witness to the breaking down of that sculptural mass. And in seeing them breaking down, you could actually make a picture. If you kept your heart open and kept your eyes open and kept your camera going, you could make an image that would evoke the death and decay of this glacier. We, st- we put out these time-lapse cameras. We installed cameras permanently alongside these glaciers to watch the way the landscape was changing. And so these cameras are out there 365 days a year, shooting uh, every half hour or every hour of daylight as long as it's, uh, uh, there's enough light to shoot. And they make a record of how the landscape is changing. And if you were back in my brain six years ago, in 2007 when these cameras first went out you'd see me really anxious about uh, whether or not the equipment would even work that it could survive these conditions you know the 30 and 40 degrees below fahrenheit that these cameras are exposed to in some cases for weeks and months at a time so there were a lot of unknowns but as it happened we 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 have been recording an amazing piece of Earth history as, it's, as, as the landscapes are changing. The resulting images and video were featured in numerous documentaries and presentations, most recently in the full-length movie Chasing Ice, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2012. The monumental large-scale film has made many people think differently about global Repeatedly, warming. I've had people come up to me after screenings of the, our movie Chasing Ice, or after public lectures I give, after exhibitions, whatever, and somebody will say to me, well, I was sure climate change wasn't real. I thought that was one of those things that, you know, like Al Gore, one of those kinds of people I don't like, uh, believed in. And now you showed me some concrete facts, and now I get it. Thank you for showing me. James Baylog's documentary, Chasing Ice, inspires a paradigm shift in how we look at our impact on the world climate. By condensing time, the film allows the audience to witness the historic, unprecedented environmental changes occurring in the far north as we speak. Glaciers literally disappear in front of our eyes. What I find so so arresting about the process is that um, our, our little robot cameras are out there living through thick and thin, blinking their eyes open every 30 minutes more or less, uh, watching how the world is changing. I mean, that's a, it's a remarkable thing. When you, you kind of pat your little uh, robot friend on the head, close up the box, and it's out in some place in Greenland where no human being has ever even stood before, and you know you're going away, and you say goodbye to that camera, and you go away, and 12 savage months of weather uh, ensue and then you come back, and then he's still out there, still standing there, clicking away, watching the world for you. You feel very connected. And then you open the back, and then you download the pictures and play back what, what, what he or it has witnessed. And it's, it's mind-boggling, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping to see time, things you aren't normally expected or allowed to see as a human being on the earth, you can see time unfolding and you can see massive features in the landscape changing in front of your eyes in the form of these pictures. 
you could have stood out, if you could have stood there all that year, you wouldn't, you would never have perceived the changes mm -hmm. so dramatically. But the camera as this tool for bearing witness and preserving memory is an amazing instrument and an amazing character for helping the human heart and mind understand the monumentality of what's going on right now. The human race has gone on for basically its entire history, has always thought that the earth was this big static stage on which we could dance around, pretty much doing our will however we wanted it. Yeah, we would make some birds go extinct or we'd cut down some forests and, you know, a couple of things would happen here and there. But we always had the assumption that the basic operating system of Earth would return to a steady state. You know, that the chemistry, the physics, the biology, the hydrology, the oceans and water supply would stay the same. And now what we're realizing in our time, this is a revelation of, of the sciences in the past 10 years or so, we're realizing that humans are the dominant agents of change on the planet today, overriding the Earth's own rhythms and, and uh, historical forces. And we are dramatically and radically altering the fundamental operating system. And that is a staggering realization, because as I say, we always thought Earth was big, we're small, we'll peck away at the margins, but it doesn't really matter. Now we're realizing that through the combined impact of our vast populations, our need for material comfort and our technology. If you multiply those things together, we have enormous impact, enormous impact. Plants, animals, air, water, the whole works. And that's a staggering responsibility that is just starting to conceptually migrate out through the world's human population right now. And through it all, after all the photos... And the countless editing... And the speaking engagements, James Baylog is left with one thing. He is now confronted with a moral obligation to communicate the implication of this profound problem of global warming to a wider audience. So that is really what keeps us motivated all the time. The realization that in collecting this evidence, bearing witness to what's going on and presenting it to the world, we're having a very substantial impact on how people understand uh, climate change and our position as, as a homo sapiens at this point in history. Right from the beginning of the Extreme Ice Survey, I had this profound sense of responsibility that we did in fact uh, have a necessity of putting these pictures out in the world. It wasn't good enough to just make a bunch of pretty pictures and show them to my friends or have a couple small art exhibitions here and there. Uh, it was central to my thinking that if we had something that came across in the cameras, we had to put it out there. You, you, you come to the realization over the years that the subjects are actually speaking through you. You know, the world perceives you as going out and looking in on something and harvesting it, but that's actually not right. We, we all come to the notion over time that, that the best pictures come if you open your heart, open your mind, open your eyes, and you become the, the receptor, the vehicle, for letting that subject out there talk through your camera, through you, and then back out to the rest of the world. That creates a profound um, obligation and necessity and opportunity for us to speak on behalf of those landscapes that would otherwise have no voice. That was James Baylog on his project to document rapidly melting glaciers back in 2013. If you want to hear more stories like that, 
check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would really love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. And your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. And also, upon completing the survey, you can enter a draw for a chance to win the opportunity to host Terra Informa here in Edmonton like I am right now. And if you're in another city, that's no problem because you can still co-host from afar. Speaking of co-hosting, have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Fall semester is right around the corner and Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. And on that note, that is all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us on our website there at terrainforma.ca and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thank you to our contributors this week, Andrew Galvin, Nat Hontar, Shelley Jodwin, and Jason Wang. My name is Amanda Rooney, and it's been a pleasure to hang out with you for this episode of Terra Informa. I hope to catch you next week.